1: You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 69 Extreme Picky Eating with Dr. Katia Roel. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker.
2: That's something you should try they might avoid entire food groups so that so they'll uh, an extreme picky eater won't eat any vegetables or you know the parents will say they've never eaten a vegetable or they've never been hungry
1: happy sunday veggie lovers woohoo it's another episode of veggie doctor radio and i know you're gonna love this episode it is so high yield especially for parents That feel that their child is an extreme picky eater. I think that you're going to get a lot from this episode. Dr. Rowell is a wonderful guest and we had a great conversation and she has a fantastic book that I hope that you will check out if you feel that you need help with a child that has extreme picky eating. So by now, if you've been listening for a few weeks, you know that This is the special series on intuitive eating. So far we've covered the principles of intuitive eating, health at every size, size differences in children. I talked to you about intuitive eating in children and the five pillars of healthy eating. And then we talked about what picky eating is and why some children may have symptoms of picky eating and what you can start to do about that. But now we're gonna take it a step further we're gonna talk to an expert on extreme picky eating. So Dr. Rowell is a relational childhood feeding specialist. During her time in practice as a family doctor, she was struck by the prevalence of disordered eating and feeding challenges and related health problems. Dr. Rowell believes that establishing a healthy feeding relationship, in essence, how children are fed, is the missing piece in addressing disordered eating and weight dysregulation. Dr. Roel has developed a special interest in selective or picky eating, and is passionate about sharing a responsive feeding philosophy that reduces conflict and supports the child's internal drive to grow up and do well with eating. She is described as academic, but warm and down to earth, and is a popular speaker. She is also the author of three books, Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating and Conquering Picky Eating for Teens and Adults. Her website is www.extremepickyeating.com. And that's all together, extremepickyeating.com. So check out that website, check out her book for sure. So in this conversation, we talk about what's the difference between typical picky eating, the stuff we talked about last week, and extreme picky eating. And that is what Dr. Ruel really focuses on these days in her practice and the way that she helps with her clients. We also talk about what it's like to be the parent of an extreme picky eater, the definition of a competent eater, and how misguided concerns about weight can perpetuate eating problems. We talk about the worry cycle and how that's involved in feeding your child And then she describes the Steps Plus program and how it can help you with your extreme picky eating child, what a meal opportunity is, and resources for families with extreme picky eaters. But really, we just skimmed the surface. I think you'll learn a lot from this episode, but remember that you can find more in her book. And then I also want to throw in a medical disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to replace your physician a thorough evaluation, exam, and the medical advice of your own physician. So please take from it some little nuggets and tidbits, but don't use this to replace an evaluation by a trained professional. Okay, well, let's launch in to this discussion. Oh, and before we launch in, I do wanna remind you that you can sign up for my newsletter, you can text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R to 66866 or sign up on my website, dryami.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash sign up so that you'll be the first to hear about all of my news and podcasts and all of that. And please, if you're a regular listener or if you just popped in today and you love hearing this episode or my podcast, Please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with somebody that you think would benefit from hearing this information. Okay, let's not delay it any further and listen to what Dr. Katia Roel has to say about extreme picky eating. Well, I am just so pleased today to have this fabulous guest, Dr. Katya Roel. And she i found her as i was doing my research for my book and she has this amazing book helping your child with extreme picky eating that we're going to talk about today so welcome dr roel thank you i'm excited to be here well like i said this book is so amazing i literally ate it up in one sitting that was <laughs> a play on words i worked on that one really Um, And I just feel like it's just so practical, it's so helpful, yet it's so reassuring and empowering, which is what I really love for families to have something that can empower them. And I'm definitely going to be reading it again, because I feel like that first time through, I was just kind of getting all the basic concepts, and I want to go through and really get the details in. So thank you so much for writing this book along with Jenny McLaughlin. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yep, yes. So so I want to know a little bit more about your background. Why did you become an expert in extreme picky eating, and what prompted
2: you to write this book? Well, um, so I was a family doctor, and I was giving feeding advice, because one in three parents ask their doctors about feeding problems with their kids. And I thought I knew what I was doing um, in spite of having almost no training on this topic in in med school and in residency, I don't know if that was your experience as well, but uh, so I thought I knew what I was doing. And um it wasn't until I had my own daughter that I realized how little I knew, and it was really humbling and, um, you know, professionally kind of difficult to realize that I thought I was helping people with kind of the standard advice for eating and weight concerns when I, I probably in some cases was doing more harm than good. So I had a daughter with, um, I had feeding and weight concerns with her, and um, I was really worried. I had treated problems around diabetes and and adults who struggled with their relationship with food as well as eating disorders when I worked in college health and I was I was concerned and so luckily I stumbled on the work of Ellen Satter and um, I read her book, called Child of Mine, and within like two weeks at home, our home was completely transformed um, with that reassurance and that that knowledge and not trying to control what I couldn't control and, you know, worrying and fighting, and it was so transformative, so I ended up training and and becoming one of her clinical faculty members um, with the Ellen Satter Institute, and and, um, I just Opened a business then as the feeding doctor over a decade ago, and I honestly did not expect to specialize in this area of, you know, what we're calling extreme picky eating, but Very quickly, this is what was coming at me. was not typical run-of-the-mill picky eating, and I didn't know enough. I had to learn more. So I trained, I took, you know, pediatric feeding therapy courses. I um, was lucky enough to go down to University of Texas, um, Dallas, Callier, where my co-author, she runs a feeding clinic. And I watched her doing the feeding work behind the mirrors, and I read the research and so um, it's just was really out of a need to learn more to help these families. And and then I, I think partly with that do no harm ethic of, you know, that that doctor training of Um, just being so upset on behalf of families who go to their doctors, right? And they get told things like, well, just blend up kale and hide it in their spaghetti sauce. (laughs) Right. And then these parents of these kids with extreme picky eating are like, man, if only they would eat spaghetti sauce, we can't, you can't hide kale in plain pasta or, you know, in um, on a piece of bread. So, so I think it was just a desire in terms of writing the books of making um, accessible, uh, what I do with clients and phone calls. Um, and a lot of people can't access um, therapy or help where, around eating problems. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the help and professionals that are out there, in my opinion, um, aren't necessarily helping and in some cases are making matters worse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And, and reading your book, you know, I'm, I'm a pediatrician and it's ironic too that even for pediatricians, we don't get as much training as you would think we should in some of these areas. So we do have to learn on our own. And before we started recording this episode, Dr. Roel and I were talking about how, you know, you, you learn as you go and sometimes you evolve and and sometimes you end up realizing that advice you gave in the past wasn't necessarily the best, but then, you know, you learn from that and you do better as you go on. So it can take some time, but I I really commend you. And I thank you for doing the work that you've Mm. done because it does seem like it can be a very confusing and contradictory world for some of these families that have extreme picky eaters. But before we move on, I'd like for you to explain to my listeners, what is the difference between the typical picky eater, which seems like it's everybody pretty much every day, right? Like the pair, you know, you ask about the feeding. Oh, well, they're really picky, you know? So what's the difference between your typical picky eater and what you have defined as an extreme picky eater?
2: Right. So, you know, and I'm a mom too. And I just remember in preschool, like almost all the conversations that pick up were around frustrations around what kids were or weren't eating. And so it does feel really universal. So in the US, it's, a, it's about half of kids are thought to be typical picky eaters. And I had one of those. Um, and essentially, it's, um, you know, it's, it's normal it starts usually around age 15 18 months where they start saying no if they haven't started doing so sooner you know many will many even toddlers will start rejecting foods or older infants. So it starts about a year and a half. And we think that it was actually protective, you know, when um, you're running around on the prairie or wherever you are, um, and you're a toddler now leaving the safety of mom or the other adults caring for you, you don't want to necessarily be putting everything in your mouth. So we think there was actually an evolutionary advantage to becoming a little more choosy. Um, But it starts about a year and a half, and and it goes on through early grade school uh, generally. And, you know, kids tend to have favorites, um, and they tend to be easier to like the carbs um, often. And they will pitch an age-appropriate tantrum or, you know, protest to get those favorite foods. So they might say, yuck, I don't want that. Um, But, you know, generally if we know how to react to that, um, which is not engage with the battle, okay, you know, you don't have to eat it. There's other stuff here and we'll have this again soon. So there are all these strategies we can do to not engage in the battle. Usually a typical picky eater will calm themselves, will be able to sit at the table, finish the meal, eat other things, Um, whereas a more extreme picky eater will come to the table and see that, you know, the smoothie is purple instead of pink and, you know, get really upset, have the 90-minute meltdown where they're not able to necessarily um, soothe themselves or get over it. Um, There's a lot more anxiety. So I think anxiety, um, a seemingly sort of avoidance or more of a fear reaction around food. Um, There's actually a great thread on our Facebook page right now where where we're looking at advice that might help a picky eater, um, a typical picky eater. But the extreme picky eaters are like, whoa, you know, my kid can spot um, a piece of green the size of a pea head from 50 feet away. <laughs> you know, they they tend to um, be really wary, really inspecting food a lot more than a typical picky eater. Um, they might avoid entire food groups. So that so they'll uh, an extreme picky eater won't eat any vegetables or, you know, the parents will say they've never eaten a vegetable or they've never been hungry. Um, Whereas a typical picky eater, you know, kind of hot and cold, but if they drop one food, they'll add another. And usually at the end of the day, they'll get all of the food groups or, you know, over a course of days, the nutrition levels out. So you really see kind of a spectrum of, of this experience, but with the more extreme picky eating, I think one of the key characteristics is anxiety. Um, Lots of concern on the part of the parents. And so we use the word extreme picky eating to basically mean any time a child eats such little amount or variety that it impacts their physical, social, or emotional development. So maybe they're not growing. Um, Certainly if they're losing weight, that's a huge red flag. Um, Or, you know, there are nutritional deficiencies. And the part of the definition that is, I think we're the only ones saying this is that the parent worry and concern and conflict is also a big risk factor for typical picky eaters to get into more trouble. Mm -hmm. So we really bring in that parent piece because there's tons of research that shows. If we've got scared and anxious parents, and I've been there, I've made feeding mistakes myself. You know, if we have scared and anxious parents who are supported or they're getting unhelpful advice, that can really make things worse. Um, and so, this is that empowering piece is to say, let's let's talk to parents. You have these challenges. Your child might have sensory issues or texture issues. Um, how can we certainly? one, not make things worse? And how can we maybe facilitate so that the child can progress?
1: Yeah. Wow. That's so wonderful. It's such a dynamic, isn't it? I mean, you have this child that ranges between a typical picky eater to an extreme picky eater, but just like you're saying, it changes the whole atmosphere Mm -hmm. in the household. So what is it like for these families that have
2: extreme picky eaters? What are their lives like? Um, you know, I mean, every family is unique, but I think one of the one of the things that is so frustrating, um, and uh, there's a Facebook support group called Mealtime Hostage. Uh, they have over twelve thousand parents. On this group, and um, and I know they're doing research, and so um, I know they're administrator, and so they're also doing research and surveys to find out. But in terms of what my clients or what we're learning from these online groups, pretty universally, families are not getting the help that they're so desperately asking for, and. You know, that's on the doctors a lot of the time. We're that first line. I know I did a terrible job when I was in practice before I learned all of this supporting them, and we hear this pretty universally. You know, we went to ask for help. Hey, my kid's really picky, and the advice often is, oh, they're growing fine. Don't worry about it. They'll grow out of it. And so um, I think that sense of, like, parents have said to me, we're circling the drain, we are in a black hole. So I have this visual that's kind of a spiral that I call the worry cycle. Mm -hmm. And it spirals like kind of like a drain. And that's because parents told me like, we're, we're like drowning, we're circling the drain, we're like desperate for help, and we're just not getting it. And so, you know, pediatricians and family doctors, and you know, these primary care, this first safety net, often just isn't trained to help. And so I think it's pretty universal that the parents I work with really care. They're not negligent. They're spending tons of time and energy. They're they've tried sticker charts. They've tried, you know, almost everything to try to get kids to eat, right? We tried sticker charts. We did video, we've using the iPad, we're trying to bribe with, you know, a favorite dessert. Um, we went and saw this therapist who's, you know, making him kiss or lick the food and you know they hate that and now we're having these epic battles to try to get them just to kiss a raisin or whatever the therapy task is so I'd say a lot of the time there's just a lot of sense of kind of hopelessness like we're they're in the trenches and and they're they're like waiting for someone to throw them uh, a line and and they're just feel like they're getting bad advice and it's getting worse and worse so um, that's been my sense with the with the families that I've heard from. Most of the families I've worked with, because I'm outside of the the normal system, have have I like to say have been failed by rather than the child failed. So most of them have been failed by some standard therapy approaches just hasn't worked for them like a sensory approach or behavioral approaches so a lot of the families i work with are are kind of sick and tired of fighting and get to the point where they just give in because they want to enjoy mealtimes and their kids
1: yeah and what i get a sense of too is that there's just so much anxiety this is so anxiety provoking and it's pretty much life consuming like this takes over the lives of the families preparing meals, trying to get the child to eat, being frustrated when they don't eat, taking time to try to force them to eat. And it, it can be incredibly stressful. But there's also that whole cycle of guilt and shame, which is part sure. of that worry cycle that you talked about because you get comments, of course, from well-meaning strangers and family yeah. members yeah. and yeah. conflicting advice from different medical professionals that don't understand this different level of extreme picky eating. And then parents feel ashamed, like it's their fault and they, they've failed their own child. So I just kind of wanted to paint the picture just so Uh, that other families are aware that, that there's other people. And I'm glad that you pointed out that support group too, because that way families know where to find other uh, parents to talk to and that they feel supported when they're going through this.
2: Yeah. And I think it's so isolating and the judgment that's out there is so awful. I write on, you know, on the Facebook page, I said, never, ever read the comments in any article on picky eating because, you know, it's so demoralizing when people who don't know, they say, "Well, well, these are spoiled brats, just make them eat. If you didn't feed them crap in the first place, they wouldn't eat that. And I have plenty of parents who, cook everything from scratch. And they're, you know, they're really into whole foods and preparing everything themselves. And they're like, I never thought I'd have a kid who was going to eat, you know, chicken nuggets. But um, so it happens across all families in terms of like what the families are eating. It's really kind of a universal problem. And I think there's so much guilt piled on Um, Or, you know, the parents, the grandparents were like, leave them with me for a weekend. I'll get him to eat. (laughs) And it's like, no, it's not. That's not the reality. Um, So it's hard to address that guilt. and, And I've had that guilt around feeding issues. And I think, you know, that's this difference between guilt and shame is I, you know, what I'm doing isn't working and I need to do better. I need to learn, which I've been through that cycle. It's, it's painful, but the shame piece we need to just get rid of. And so a lot of these kids have challenges, um, or, or, um, we perceive that they have challenges where we're, where we're maybe intervening inappropriately, or we've had bad advice. You know, if a pediatrician says when you walk with your newborn out the door do whatever you have to to get this number of ounces into the baby and then that you find out later that the parents were force feeding where the you know the baby's sort of choking on express breast milk or whatever it is um, that's not abuse or neglect it's really um, poor advice fueled by really fear so um, I you know I, I think that if we can get rid of that shame and that judgment piece, there's so much judgment online, and that's why I mentioned that mealtime hostage because it's really a safe, um, a safe place that comes from the feeding philosophy that I use, which is this responsive, you know, um, approach.
1: That's awesome. So there's all kinds of different reasons a child may become an extreme picky eater, but can you just cover just sort of the overarching basics of uh, why some children become picky eaters, extreme picky eaters, and you've kind of touched on them a little bit before we start talking more about what parents can do and start right. doing about it.
2: Right. So, you know, and this is the whole first couple sections of both of our books, because I think it's important to understand why so that we're not just saying, oh, they're being naughty. Um, So generally, in one sentence, anything that makes or made in the past eating or digesting difficult, painful, uncomfortable, makes a child more likely to struggle with eating. So if some, you know, if they an undiagnosed allergy, and they had stomach aches, you know, I've heard lots of stories of I was being forced, or I was, you know, pushing milk. And then we later learned that there was an allergy. So um, if there's pain, so if you have, you know, another family I worked with, they had a three-year-old Who, while they were learning to eat table food, had this raging case of hand, foot, and mouth disease. So, the mouth was covered in painful ulcers, ended up in the hospital with IV hydration, and kind of were given advice to sort of force feed. Um, And so, got into that spiral of that feeding dynamic, that cycle of parents trying to get kids to eat and kids resisting. So, even after the painful ulcers healed, there's still that embodied memory that the child has of this was painful and maybe now uh, my sort of scared parents are getting a little bit pushy with the bottle when I'm trying to push away or with the sippy cup and so then we can get in that cycle of avoidance and that that memory of that pain and fear. So that's part of it. We also know that kids who are sensory um, are more likely to be selective, and how we react to that is really important. So, kids on the spectrum, children who have anxiety underlying, can be more anxious. Although a lot of these food battles can also cause anxiety, so sometimes that's hard to tease out. Um, and so, you know, we we see lots of things, maybe getting kids into that cycle, but that cycle is is can perpetuate the feeding problems as well. Mm
1: -hmm. So in your book, you talk about this steps plus system. So can you just basically talk about it and give parents an introduction on how to think differently about learning to feed their extreme
2: picky eater? Right, so the Steps Plus program, um, you know, it's a way to organize um, in a relatable, easy to digest, haha, ha, sorry, had to do that. <laughs> easy to digest. <laughs> um, the, you know, this approach to turning this dynamic around. And so all of the steps, you know, you can, the main one, the first one is reducing anxiety and conflict. Um, and so, all of the steps can happen at the same time but we need to address anxiety first if we don't address anxiety and we're trying to work on variety you know trying to get an anxious scared kid to eat more more variety um, we're missing out on to me what the biggest opportunity is so we need to address the power struggles and the anxiety first and and the parents as well as the child's and i think this is so important is Um, We spend a lot of time in the book, too, really examining, you know, do you need to be worried about your child's growth or your child's um, nutrition? Because so many of the worries are actually misperceptions or it's not something we need to worry about. So protein is a big one. Parents worry so much about protein. But most kids, um, even picky eaters, even about at least half of the extreme picky eaters where we did the full intake analysis, most of them actually got enough protein. So when we're able to identify the parent's worry, what are you worried about? And the big three are growth, nutrition, and appetite. Um, We have to listen to those worries. And if there is something to worry about, let's address it. But more often than not, Um, we can actually reassure and you said that right in the beginning that the book is reassuring and we need to get parents off that anxiety cycles so that they can facilitate rather than worry about you know maybe stepping over the line into pressure which makes kids eat less well so step one is listening to parents not just saying they'll grow out of it don't worry you know listening to parents um, and we might say don't worry but we better have at least listened you know done a history and an exam as appropriate and then we want to address the child's anxiety and a lot of that is about um, autonomy Um, it's about respecting the child's boundaries and autonomy so you know if you have even as early as infancy if you have an infant who where you think i've got to get these four ounces in but they're screaming and turning away and batting at the bottle those are clear cues that they're done for that feeding and we need to respect that. And so um, a lot of times it's about getting out of the battles, the power control battles. Um, they're not working anyway, usually. And so if we can decrease the conflict and power struggles, children feel safe at the table. They're not sitting there with a cortisol rush and you know in a stress response where they can't even tell if they're hungry. So really working on making kids feel safe and respected at the table is a huge step to this. And often just doing step one, we see real increases in how much kids are eating. They feel safe and respected at the table and we see them often fairly quickly increase the amount of their preferred foods that they're eating. So we always start with anxiety. You know, the other steps are routine. So, getting into the routine of family meals, a big thing that we see is um, kiddos at the table for 45 minutes, hour and a half, because parents can usually maybe get one or two more bites in, but that really sabotages their appetite. So, we often will limit meal times to say maximum of half an hour. Um, Lots of kids I see, two, three year olds, are in a high chair for five, six hours a day. And so we really want it to be half an hour max, ideally at a table with other people. They've got a good foot rest, you know, um, and then we're getting into that routine of not eating and grazing because that really actually sabotages appetite. And this is one of those pieces of advice that that parents get from doctors all the time, you know, just let him eat whenever he wants to or follow him around with a healthy smoothie or, you know, let him eat as long as, you know, this, uh, some of the books talk about these toddler nibble trays um, and really almost every pediatric feeding therapist is one of the few places where they all agree is that you want routine where they're eating and then they're not for two to three hours in between so that they you know have a chance to have their hunger signals triggered right the blood sugars getting used up in their body so the blood sugar is low um you know we all these hormonal changes and then they can eat more at their mealtime settings so i've also had clients who where the occupational therapist told them your child can't sense hunger and I think this is really, really kind of a scary thing. I'm getting on another topic. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just going with it. But um, so this is that trust piece. You know, if you're told your child can't sense hunger, so you have to do it for them, that's terrifying. And so often it's just a child who doesn't have um, the right things in place to sense their hunger so they're stressed at the table they're followed around with sippy cups of supplemental drinks so they've always got a little something in their tummy you know I had one client who was four who'd been through feeding therapies they were told he can't sense hunger the mom said he's never been hungry or asked for seconds this was one of these kiddos at the table for six seven hours a day kind of always had something in their tummy all we did was to limit meal times to half an hour with you know just water in between and you know 4 days later i got an email mom said he just asked for seconds on pancakes and said i'm hungry for the first time so that was all about the child having the opportunity and the facilitation to listen to those hunger cues and that really makes me mad that this is you know they've been told your child can't sense hunger and yeah. really that was one phone call, right? You know, incredible. so incredible. And
1: you know, but the thing is, is that our whole society has been taught this that mm-hmm. we really, that almost like we should fear hunger. Mm-hmm. So we should constantly be eating. In the past 70 years, we've almost doubled the amount of times that we eat per day because we have this mentality of it's bad. Because if you know, your metabolism will slow down if you don't eat every, you know, mm. like hour or something. So yeah, that that's right. Something. Right. But the but the also ironic thing about that whole situation is that his physiology was working perfectly, right? I mean, if you yeah, if he was absolutely yeah. of course he's not gonna feel right. hunger. His body
2: was absolutely acting the way it was supposed to. Yes.
1: So,
2: yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yeah.
1: Interesting.
2: So, you know, I think it's actually really rare that kids can't sense hunger and do this. I know of, uh, you know, Group Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics out east. They're doing these amazing weaning protocols on kids who've never, you know, eaten by mouth or they've had a tube feed, tubes, you know, since being in the ICU, um, NICU. And even these kids who seem like, man, you can't trust this four-year-old They've or three-year-old, they've never eaten by mouth or they're, they're really... Always all their calories and nutrition has come from two feeds even children with challenges can be trusted and and at least they deserve the optimization to give them the opportunity to have that and so you know there are some relatively minor painless things we can do to optimize the child's underlying abilities and wisdom. But you're right. I think our whole culture has kind of lost its mind around food. And, you know, I even went to pediatric feeding therapy training where the teachers were like, you know, we're on Weight Watchers. And, um, you know, if we don't teach kids portion control, who will? And so I'm thinking, wow, these these are adults teaching kids to eat who don't trust their own bodies to have the ability to self-regulate and that intuitive, in-tuned eating. Um, so I think, You know, I think it feels really weird to trust kids with their eating. It feels counterintuitive, like we need an app to tell us how to eat. And really, our bodies have that wisdom. Even for kids with sensory challenges, there's a lot we can do to optimize their inborn wisdom and look at their strengths and and what they can do and try to optimize that.
1: Oh, I love it. And actually, I did write that word down, counterintuitive, of what I wanted to point out about... Letting go and letting your child take back that autonomy Mm. because I think from grandparents on it's been kind of passed on that Mm -hmm. the way that you feed your child is you sit them at the table and you tell them they have to eat Everything and they can't get up until they finish everything and you know, doggone it. You're gonna eat it because I said
2: so (laughs) right, right
1: counterintuitive to think that when you do that it can actually cause children to eat less Right. When you stop doing that, they actually will eat more. So in our heads, parents really feel like they're doing the right thing. And that's what they've been taught. And that's what they've learned. But taking a step back and saying, okay, well, what does the research show? What, what does it show whenever we actually do the opposite for these children? Um, So just kind of pointing out to parents. Yeah, it's going to seem weird. going to feel
2: uncomfortable absolutely absolutely and and I and we try in our books and when we talk with parents to warn them that that transition that first couple days or weeks can feel really weird and really scary and um you know for some kids where you've been fighting to get that one bite of cucumber in um yeah they're not going to eat that one bite of cucumber for a little while in the transition because um that external reason that you know the 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 threat or the sticker charts or the praise or whatever outside reward or like carrot and stick we've used to get them to eat when we take that away they seem to eat kind of worse for a while and then it seems to confirm our biggest fears right well we he can't be trusted look i didn't make him eat that piece of cucumber and he didn't eat it for 2 days i can't do this so one thing i want to warn parents of is you know if you're struggling with this, don't just listen to this podcast and jump in and then say I did it and it didn't work. And I hear that all the time. The other group of parents that I work most with is actually food preoccupied kids who seem to not be able to stop eating, right? And and you know, we had we that was the issue with our toddler and the first week or so when we let her eat as much as she want. And I stopped trying to limit her. Like she ate more than my husband a couple of times. And you're like, oh my gosh, we can't trust this kid. And so if you know um, what the process looks like, so, you know, learn, read a book, reach out, get, look at some podcasts or blog posts. Before jumping in, if you're really struggling, because you're gonna hit these common obstacles. And if you don't know in the moment how to deal with, oh my gosh, you know, now he didn't even eat that one bite I used to be able to get into him, the, this, you're gonna slide back into that, you know, power struggle. Hey humans,
1: I know you wanna eat healthier, but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is a number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients. Green Chef sends organic, fresh produce and chef-designed recipes in every box for satisfying, nourishing, and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine. Find recipes for every lifestyle, including plant-based diets. Green Chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients, including low added sugar and sodium smart options. You get to choose from 80 plus flavor packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. Try 15 plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients, as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped, and custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. They also provide the recipe cards, and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow, and everything you need is included, so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events, hello spring, and time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals to put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use code IAMHUMAN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash IAMHUMAN50 and use the code IAMHUMAN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a by women and for women company, and they now offer a nutrient dense green powder called Daily NutriGreens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutrigreens greens and we loved it. The Daily Nutra greens contain an immune antioxidant and detox blend along with prebiotics, probiotics, and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients such as B12, iron, zinc, and selenium. The daily greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or your baked goods. The daily Nutri-Greens are vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the Apple Banana Daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste, and I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink, it into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have Time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's Daily Nutri Greens, head to myeq.com and use code Doctor Yami. That's D R Y A M I for 15% off Equilibria's Daily Nutri Greens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Doctor Yami D R Y A M I at checkout for 15% off site wide today.
2: And so, um, you know, I kind of pull a Dr. Phil, like, how's that working for you? You know, you've been doing this for two years where you've been fighting over every bite of vegetable. Um, Usually that's what it is. And they're not learning to like them um, versus if we kind of give up control, not that we don't facilitate and do all kinds of things to help the process along. But um, it's, it's really tough when in the beginning, they seem to um, eat a little bit worse before it gets better.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that leads me perfectly, because I feel like you're reading my mind mm. into the next question, which I wanted you to address the difference between long term goals and short term goals, because some children that are extreme picky eaters, this may be 7 10 years of their life that we're talking about where it's been really stressful and anxiety provoking some it might be in you know, a short period of time but there might be different timelines when parents start to initiate some of these practices and see change and What you've seen from what I read in your book is that some parents like, okay, well, I'm just going to try this for one month. And if I don't see progress, then we're not doing it. So tell us about the difference between what might be some examples of short term goals versus long term goals for
2: these families. Right, so this is a great question, and you know, I have to because we're doctors. I do want to put out the caveat to say, you know, certainly if your child is losing weight, or you're seeing, wow, this is some serious malnutrition, where you know um, he's really low energy. You know, definitely follow up with your doctor and look at iron, and and um, you know, of course, the doctor may not. (laughs) you know, but anyway, that's the whole, that's the challenge is when I say, talk to your doctor and then they might not know, but at least find out that they're not medically in, you know, an urgent situation. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, with that said, even with kids who are, you know, fifth percentile in the growth chart and they're sort of low and steady growth. Um, so early so wait, sorry i lost my train of thought with my little warning there to repeat the so the
1: difference between or if you could give us some examples of what might be a short term goal versus Thank a long term goal
2: short term versus long term goal okay so short term goal um yeah so defining the goals i think we want to remember that the long term goal is we want to raise adults right we're you know this, this is the long haul we want to raise um Adults eventually who feel good about food, who can eat a variety of food, who can—it's um, called being eating competent. This is Ellen Satter's construct. Who can, you know, shop and plan and cook for themselves, and they nurture themselves with a variety of foods and meal times, not, you know, fully dominated by anxiety. So our goal is to raise competent eaters. Now, I'm not saying we have to wait till adulthood, um, but a short-term goal would be, um, I'm going to get my kid to eat like the my plate every meal, right? And th- this is a uh, um, often we sort of have these short-term goals that Um, kind of get in the way of our long-term goals. So I need to get this many servings of, you know, fruits and vegetables in them today, or I need this much protein, maybe an example of a short-term goal where you invite conflict and um, end up farther away from your long-term goal. One of the things that I talk about as we transition um, from this kind of anxious, controlled battleground meal is that we have to look at different short-term goals. And we call this the stages of progress. And so a a responsive short-term goal might be, my child comes to the table um, without crying, right? They actually want to come to the table. And so while we wait for the broccoli to go in their mouths or whatever our long-term goal is, or our our, intermediate goal, um, we need to be aware of short-term progress because it's not going to be your kid suddenly, you know, eating kale um, salads for the most part. And so, um, if we miss the early progress, we're going to get frustrated. And so, um, for example, one of my first clients was a pediatric dietitian, and every day, this um, three-year-old son of hers, who mostly ate pasta. Um, and sort of for, you know, less than 10 foods. So he would qualify for ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So he ate less than 10 foods and and was, you know, smaller than average. Every morning he'd get up and cry for pasta. First thing, he'd come into her room, pasta, pasta. And um, so when we instituted the steps, um, a second or third phone call, she said, oh my gosh, you know, he put a blueberry in his mouth but he spat it out. He wouldn't eat it. And she was really um, that was really demoralizing, like it should be working faster. But I said, "Wow, just wait a minute. He put a blueberry in his mouth. He came to the table. He was happy at the table. He put he held the blueberry. He put it in his mouth. He took it out. He wasn't upset about it. And as we also reviewed other stuff going on, you know, I flip back to my notes, I said, hey, is he still crying for pasta first thing in the morning? And she's like, oh, no, he hasn't done that for, I don't even, you know, at least a couple weeks. So... We see them becoming less anxious often, these short-term goals. They're happier at the table. They're feeling respected and safe there. Um, and this is all necessary steps along the way to then being curious and to branching out with different foods is the attitude at the table. Mm-hmm. So another example of this is, um, so so many, I mean, I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to this. The kid comes to the table their pre plated plate is put in front of them, and there's, you know, um, a little pile of beets, and that's, you know, that's they have to eat that little pile of beets, or they have to poke it, or kiss it, or whatever they're expected to do with this pile on their plate. And the child comes to the table, and they're already negotiating, and they're like, you know, I don't like beets, or they're crying, or they, how many bites? They start in on how many bites can I have more mashed potatoes before I have to eat beets and so in that scenario the kid's already anxious their heart rate's probably up they're not happy at the table and then half the time I'm not hungry and they won't eat anything and then they leave the table and they go play Minecraft or cards with their sibling or whatever it is and then you've just finished cleaning the table and the kid comes back and says I'm hungry I want to you know <laughs> I want a cliff bar, whatever it is. And then the parents are like, wow, this is so manipulative. He just said he wasn't hungry. And actually, what's happened is at the table, they're so stressed out, they can't tell that they're hungry. It's not being manipulative. Then they leave the table, they're able to regulate, their heart rate comes down, the you know, the cortisol, their stress hormones, and now they can hear those cues coming from their bodies, and now they're coming back to look for food. And so we really need the table to be a place where they're not um, dysregulating, where they're not upset and anxious so that they can start to tune into their appetite. And that happiness is one of those um, short-term goals that's really critical to getting to the long-term goal of a competent eater.
1: hmm and it helps the whole dynamic at the table because automatically, when that child first sits down and says, I don't want this, then you know, the mom's heart rate and blood pressure is going up and it's just like a battle, you know, it's just like everybody yes. ends up in tears. I remember those for sure. times. Oh, I, I for literally, sure. it was like one of those things. You're just so frustrated and you're so anxious and you don't know what to do and you don't know whether to be firm or whether to be like super permissive. Right. And so right. You're just stuck in that, what you talked about with the worry cycle. <laughs> which help Yeah, well, that, that was really great. So let's go back a little bit. I know that you brought this up earlier, but I just want you to make some more points about misguided concerns when it comes to a child's weight. How can that
2: make some of these problems worse? Right. So, um, I think that there's a lot of attention right now on growth charts. I know when I went to the pediatrician, it was like the first thing they do is weigh your kid and measure them. And then you get a printout with a percentile, right? And it feels very much like a report card. Um, and so I think that we, unfortunately, in our, you know, we have this sort of weight bias um, diet culture where we we feel like the only okay body to have is around the 50th percentile or one standard deviation, if that brings anyone, you know, flashbacks from statistics or biology class, like, Um, from the mean like like the only and and our growth charts say this like this is the only okay body to have this is normal anything above it is overweight or obese anything below 20th percentile is underweight and even that dreaded you know failure to thrive and so um, so often I hear from parents they'll say you know my son is underweight he's 20th percentile And there's this misperception that like 20th percentile is bad, 50th is better, Um, especially if you're a girl, if you're 85th percentile, that's bad, you know. And so we misinterpret, doctors too, how we are supposed to look at growth charts and you know, I've had clients where the kid comes in, they're at the third percentile, everyone's panicking. You know, there some doctors call that failure to thrive. And then dad walks in and he's five foot three, you know, and you're like, well, hold up, parents are at the third percentile. Um, you know, and there are ethnic differences in growth charts, and that and that, you know, these growth charts we use were made from white kids in the 70s, like looking at sort of average numbers. So um Children can be smaller than average and absolutely healthy. So if you've got a kid at the 20th percentile and they've always been there and they're otherwise doing great, that's just where they're growing. They're they're just smaller than average. And we forget that. And so there's been all this, I think, a lot of times pressure to get these kids to be 50th percentile or to be something they're not. You know, and it starts in infancy, This that, that baby I mentioned where the doctor said, do whatever you have to to get food in. The baby was growing at 20th percentile, and the dad was panicked because she was, in his words, underweight. And when we plotted it out, she was rock steady, solid on the 20th percentile the whole time. I'm like, this is not underweight, she's just smaller than average. And that was so reassuring to him that, you know, in spite of everything they'd done, this, this wisdom in her body, you know, she was just growing just fine. Um, Another thing I want to mention about growth charts is, um, you know, I used to say steady growth is healthy growth. And yeah, that's true. But, but we also see kids who often will gain some weight, and then they have a height growth spurt. And then, so depending on where you catch them in their growth patterns, it can look like they're falling off the growth chart. Like my child literally grew five inches in the last year, you know, and so if you catch them right after a height growth spurt before they've put on weight, they haven't lost any weight, but depending on where they are, they can, they can lose, um, they can look like they're falling off their curve. Um, I was shocked to learn there's a, a paper, where they looked at thousands of kids and one third of kids up to age two years look like they're falling off their growth curve or going up on it. They actually um, cross more than two percentiles. And before six months, infants can do that. And so I feel like the medical world has sort of like, oh, my gosh, their BMI is 10th percentile. That's underweight get them to eat more, which is the worst advice, because you're instilling fear and you're telling parents to pressure. Um, Whereas the doctors need to do a thorough history and a thorough exam. And almost always when kids have gotten been in trouble on their growth charts, actually never have I seen a case where a problem that shows up on their growth charts, charts isn't obvious from the history right, where there's something else going on. We're getting into huge battles. He's not taking the spoon anymore. Um, Or, you know, this kid's in foster care, or there's been this huge move, or we're homeless, or something else is going on. Um, But if all we look at is the growth chart and say, oops, overweight, eat less, that advice doesn't work great either. Or oops, underweight, eat more. Um, Parents get into, into problems. It's not, it doesn't work that way. So very commonly i see kids who are just smaller than average where this alarm is sounded i think inappropriately and then that kicks them into that cycle
1: yeah and so then they're at the table trying to get more bites in and that's when some of the issues start or Mm -hmm. they start them on supplemental drinks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they're drinking between meals and then when they get to dinner they're not hungry (laughs) so it just creates a cycle but no i agree i feel like i literally spend Half of my day reassuring parents about growth Mm. curves and and 50th percentile, but I feel like my practice everybody wants to be 75th percentile, Mm. like the magic. So interesting percentile. The parents are like, oh, so she's just average <laughs> just like, oh, she's following her blueprint this is
2: right she, right
1: so it, it's it's really it's so strange so we yeah.
2: actually have um, studies that suggest that boys get pressured more to eat and that dads pressure more and I think that's all this sort of gender stuff we want boys to be big and strong so if you've got a kind of lean you know quote-unquote beanpole little boy there's often pressure on them and most more of the girls that I see who are, you know, parents are worried about food preoccupation, they tend to be bigger. And we don't, you know, our culture doesn't generally value bigger girls, um, or smaller boys. And so we do see some of those patterns playing out. Um, so, you know, and I think it all comes down to control, like we, you know, we can't control, we can with a whole lot of effort in the short term, what kids put into their mouths, but we can't really control. Um, you know, their, their growth, the more we try to control it, the worse things get in terms of growth. You know, when they poop, you know, for those of us who've had potty training battles, you can't make them poop on command or sleep, right? So the, you know, I think the more that we go from, I'm going to try to control or get my kid to eat to my job is about providing the opportunities and the best possible environment for them to do well with eating and with their growth and to learn to love their bodies. When we can switch from that control mindset, I'll tell you, as a parent, I it was like a huge weight lifted off my shoulder and I saw my daughter doing better with food. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really incredible. And it's very fascinating about how we do have these different gender norms that we want to fulfill and what you were saying about parents and their size I think is super important when we take into account what the parents height I always ask each parent's height but also one thing I ask if we're if they're concerned about their child's Size is what were you like when you were a kid? Because sometimes yes. when we get to adult, our body type may not quite be the same. <laughs> so, sure, far, but may not. So, I asked, What were you like when you were growing up? And a lot of them were like, Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I was so skinny and so late. Yes. And I can yep. yep. wait. And I'm like, Well, then you're yep. this is just their body type. Absolutely. And
0: they're,
2: and they're happy. And it's great. Fun. Yeah. You know? So. and and it's kind of sad that you have to spend all that time sort of fighting against these cultural um but thank goodness you're doing it because reassuring parents lets them stay off that cycle um it's so important but yeah i i asked that question too you know oh yeah i was always in the front row in choir you know until puberty and then i had a growth spurt parents will often when you ask them about how they grew. So that's a great question and great to remind listeners to, to, you know, think back about their patterns as well.
1: Well, also to remember too, the other thing I wanted to bring up about this, <laughs> cause this is a big deal for me. That's why I want to talk a lot about this. Excellent. Is, Please. Um, how it affects a child's identity. Mm-hmm. I actually had the most heartbreaking thing happen just the other day. It was a couple of weeks ago, new patient, cute little guy. He was probably like seven or eight And, you know, on the smaller side, but based on the history, what mom told me, he'd always been around the same percentile. And I'm doing his exam and then halfway through, he's like, I'm so scared. And Mm. I'm like, why? And he's like, I'm just afraid you're going to say I'm small. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my goodness. So, yeah, because the mom came in like, you know, he's small. He's always been small. We've been trying to get him to eat more. As soon as that starts, I'm starting my talking about like, yeah. you are normal. This is what your body's blueprint is. Yes. You. You're fine. You're healthy. You're normal. And yes. obviously, you know, the rest of the exam in history, there was nothing I was concerned about. Right, um, right. So it can yeah. affect your child's identity too. Absolutely. And you can start Absolutely. to feel bad about their own yeah. size and shape.
2: Absolutely. And I think any of those conversations, um, you know, so whenever I do phone consults, I I say, I don't want your kiddo listening in, right? Or I wish that parents would bring their size concerns to you, maybe privately or just sort of more subtly, um, big or small, you know, these little ears are hearing it and I think also, you know, we a lot of parents will try to use nutrition information to try to get their kids to eat more. So, hey, don't you want to be big and strong? You know, don't you want muscles like Daddy or like like Mommy? Or you know, so I think those. I think you're absolutely right. Those messages of something's wrong with me. I'm not big and strong. again, brings up those negative emotions at mealtimes and around food, and it's going to make their appetite worse. So I think that's such a great point is that we, you know, big or small, we want to love these kids and and help them be the best that they can be. And um, yeah, so so not making the identity like you're the small picky eater. Susie's my sugar addict and Timmy, you know, is my tiny picky beanpole. You know? <laughs> Both, neither of those are particularly helpful. Um, so yeah, just, just, i um, trying to, you get what you get, right. And if you have a bigger than average kid or a smaller than average kid, it's um, it's not easy in our culture because there is so much attention and judgment, but I think just, just, remembering that whatever the challenges are, that um, to have that love and that relationship and that trust. And that's why I love the work that I do, this responsive approach. Um, It brings families closer together. It makes the table a place where people want to be. And it decreases the conflict and the worry. And we get to enjoy each other more. And that's precious. I mean, this week, you know, I have a, I have a teenager now, and we still eat um, at least one meal a day together, and it's where we laugh the most, and I, I just I treasure it, and I would be really sad, had I not found this work, I know I know we would have been down a path um, with my worrying tendencies that would have been really, um, you know, sad to miss out on this so I really that's a big part of this is I want to I want this to bring families together and bring back that joy and that connection and we know all this data about family meals you know being predictors or linked with successful outcomes and later onset of smoking and sexual activity like we know that there's something magic about that shared meal time and I don't think it's necessarily the food on the table hmm. it while it's important equally as important is The connection, the emotional piece. And I I think it's sad if we sacrifice that to try to get these short-term nutrition goals in. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, that is just so beautiful. And I love how you found something that not only helped you and your family, but you're helping so many other people with something that's so important. But that acceptance piece, I think that that's huge because especially within these typically developing children, there's going to be differences. Just like you said, there's going to be some children that are a little bit more responsive around food and some children Mm -hmm. that might be a little bit more wary around food. And as long as they're growing and thriving and they seem to be doing well, part of it is just going to be acceptance and just Mm -hmm. relaxing and letting anxiety go. And like you said, finding that joy and that connection.
2: Yeah. And, and kids don't have to all be foodies. You know, I think there's this pressure, uh, you know, on Facebook, I unfriended somebody cause they had a picture or hid or unfollowed, whatever it was. They had a picture of their three-year-old drinking a green smoothie with the caption, mama's doing something right. You know? And I was like, well, that's just so shaming. Then the implication is every other mama whose kid is not drinking a green smoothie is doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I've heard so often The you know, a lot of times, we if we have patience and we facilitate, you get these major breakthroughs with these kids. Some kids, even with extreme picky eating, within weeks or a few months, they're adding new foods, they're really, you know, really hitting the ground running. For others, it may take a little more time. I have a um, special interest in helping foster and adoptive kids, and you know, one mom had, um, and by the way, I have permission to share all these stories, um, but one mom had. Um, adopted children from Russia who had severe um, sensory challenges with alcohol exposures and the you know they kind of did all this patience and and facilitating and like the kid was 12 when things suddenly exploded but they did really fun things like cooking together even if the child never ate it they made um, like a cookbook and took pictures so kids with sensory problems, there's a lot in the book and a lot of things you can do. So if your child, for example, if they're sensitive to smells like this kiddo was, the child would cook with a bandana around her nose, um, you know, or you can put a fan or put the child in front of the a window or put a big fan behind them so the smells are blowing away from the child. Or don't put the tuna fish in the middle of the table, maybe serve that in the kitchen and or have it farthest away from the child. so there there are ways that, even with these sensory or texture challenges, we can um, facilitate the comfort and the respect and letting them, when they're ready, you know suddenly be eating homemade peach salsa because we've taken these steps along the way to get to that point. And it's super frustrating if your kid doesn't you know immediately do that, but I, I really believe that the long-term view um, and having that positive attitude is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some treatment approaches where, you know, you you force the kids. You've got thirty seconds to eat this bite, and then you're going to have a little bit of soda to chase it down or a candy to chase the flavor down. Um, you know, in short term, you might be able to expand variety, but I think long term you know a lot of these extreme picky eating even with this arfa diagnosis they can they can become typical eaters you can have this turning around it's not necessarily something they're going to struggle with for the rest of their lives so um, so yeah i think i think it's uh i i hope that i'm leaving, you know leaving a reassuring and hopeful message but also that patience piece and getting ideas on how to sort of expand to new things is um is helpful, which is our step five, is how do you bridge to new flavors and new things? So, um, you know, that's the last thing we do is work on um, specifics around approaching variety um, once we've got sort of the anxiety under control.
1: That is so great. Such great advice. And Literally, we only did like half of the questions, but mm-hmm. I know we could talk about this for a long time. But before we wrap up, I do want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests on my podcast is what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain
2: it? Um it's not related to kids necessarily, although actually it absolutely is. Um, I would say the thing that I'm most proud of, but that I continue to work on is um, viewing my body in, uh, from a point of kindness and really rejecting um, weight bias and diet mentality. And, and i practice, you know, in tuned eating and um, I'm not a You know, I'm not super skinny, and so that is in our culture something, uh, especially as I'm getting into middle age and nearing menopause, and bodies change. I think so. I think for me, the thing I'm proudest of is um, accepting my body, and that's really come out of my work of learning about the research and looking at children, and you know, hoping for them that they can love and cherish their bodies. you know, and kind of try to tune out this cultural obsession we have with everyone looking a certain way.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for telling us about that. And it's a journey, isn't it? I mean, this is not a simple thing, and especially in our culture, in our society, the thin ideal, and pretty much you can't go anywhere, see any TV ad or open any magazine without... Right. Uh, right you know the message that yes. we should be on diets yeah. and that we should be thin right so it's really right. hard
2: yeah and i think uh, w- another message i want to share is a lot of adults struggle with their own eating and you know there's a lot of places you'll read and say if you can't fix your own eating you can't how can you expect your child to eat well and i and i want to also put out there that sometimes it's through our children that we figure things out for ourselves. And so, you know, learning how to feed my child well was kind of a kick in the pants for me to ditch that last part of the diet mentality and foods are good or bad. And, you know, I, so I used to never be able to have a can of Coke or a, a Doritos or whatever. It was something I would essentially binge on. And so seeing my daughter at three hand me an ice cream cone and say, I'm full, when that was one of her favorite foods, she's half done. I'm like, whoa, look at this, or two or whatever age it was. I think that we can also, you know, our impulse is, I'm going to do better for my child, and then to turn that same kindness towards ourselves and understanding and curiosity around, I'm going to look at my challenges with my own eating, and, and our kids can really be an inspiration for that too.
1: Mm, that's so, so good. I love it. Well, before we say goodbye, I wanted to give you some time to talk about what services you offer and how listeners can connect with you.
2: Sure. Well, mostly what I'm focusing on now is educating um, professionals. And so I do fairly limited phone consults. And um, so uh, I've written the book, you know, Conquer Picky Eating. Jenny and I wrote Conquer Picky Eating for Teens and Adults as well as helping your child with extreme picky eating so i would you know recommend that parents start there Um, i'm also doing um, supervision for dietitians and eating disorder dietitians because i think the real problem is not you know me offering a few more phone calls but trying to train the people that parents go to for help I'm super excited, something we're working on is in 2020 in Dallas, we're actually putting on a whole two-day conference. We have seven transdisciplinary speakers coming from internationally to kind of bridge this gap too from pediatric and adolescent eating disorder worlds. They're not talking. We need to get folks working with adolescents and adults to recognize the importance of these early experiences. So I'm working a lot um, on that as well, just to try to train um, the people who are, who are there to help parents, and um, following us on extreme picky eating Facebook page, um, is probably the best way to get, um, ideas. You know, we share a lot of memes and we share a lot of, um, insights and tips and advice and also hey this news story just came up and here's what you need to know so you don't freak out <laughs> you know so i think following on extreme picky eating on facebook is probably the way to stay tuned with the work we're doing
1: such important work and then you are blogging as well over at extreme right
2: we do. We, we, you know, we blog about every six, eight weeks. So it's not a um, a regular thing. Just because our energies right now, in addition to the blogging, are really about training. Jenny, my co-author, is in Poland this week to to talk to their feeding therapy clinic program. Um, so we travel and do a fair amount of you know training. I've got some webinars I'm working on for eating disorder dietitians. So. Um, so yeah, we do blog, but really right now we're focusing a lot on trying to build the professional base for parents to turn to when they're struggling and in trouble.
1: So important. And the book Conquering Picky Eating for Teens and Adults, is
2: that a workbook? It is. Yes. So Conquer Picky Eating for Teens and Adults is a workbook and we're so excited about it. Um, and we- do hear from eating disorder um, providers and also from parents that they're using it with children as young as nine Um, and i wouldn't give the book to a nine-year-old but certainly mature 13 14 16 year olds who are struggling we actually have a blog post on how do you give a book like this to a teenager that a phd eating disorder therapist wrote because so often it's like It's so such a touchy subject, you know, with a 14-year-old. Like, not this again. So, how might you be able to offer it in a respectful way, um, and and help them with um, some of the the process? So, yeah, it's a workbook. We're really excited about it and hearing really good things. We also on our website extremepickyeating.com, we have free download PDFs where you can fill in um, like a food preferences list, which can be super helpful just to look at, you know, what is my child eating now? What did they used to eat? You know, what are some of their preferences? Do they like salty and sweet? Um, I mean, there's a whole another hour we didn't get into in terms of how do you bridge to new foods. Um, So, you know, I think the books are really a good place to start.
1: Yes. Oh my goodness, Dr. Roel. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I know that this is going to be so helpful for so many families and I'll make sure I put links to everything. So definitely listeners, if you have a child out there that's a picky eater, whether they're a typical or extreme picky eater, definitely pick up this book helping your child with extreme picky eating. I know that you'll love it and you'll find it very helpful. So Dr. Well, thank you so much for being on veggie doctor radio today. My absolute pleasure. And have a fantastic day. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band rocket surgeons for permission to use the Broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.